My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Hey listeners, welcome back to Transmissions. Thanks so much for joining us. This week on the show, Nina Pearson and James Yorpston, who recently teamed up with the Second Hand Orchestra to create the Great White Sea Eagle, a cozy and very homey collection of low-key folk songs that are saturated with soul and kind wisdom. Though Yorpston was familiar with Pearson's work, like me, he's a fan of the Cardigan's 1995 classic Life, slipping into an almost completely improvised approach was a new adventure for Pearson. Joining us from their respective places, we discussed how empathetic and loose-limbed songs like this one, Keeping Up With The Grandchildren, Yeah, came together. He's just an actor playing an old Keeping up with the grandchildren From there, all sorts of interesting topics, including Black Sabbath, Nina's interactions with Tom Jones, James's ill-fated tour with the late John Martin, and lots more. Before we get into it, though, a word about independent music media. As you may have noticed, it's weird out there. It's never been easier for folks to engage with music, but at AD, we believe there is still value in sharing what we find with people like yourself. If you dig our cultural reportage, radio shows, mixtapes, interviews, essays, podcasts, and more, and want to chip in and help us keep making them, check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. And look, I've been checking out some proofs from our friends at Serial Box Studio of the upcoming Videodrome-centric issue of our Philomathazine, and it's really incredible. It features a collection of great cinematic essays by Eric Hare. Want one? hit us up on Patreon. Okay, thanks for joining us. This is Transmission. Here's our conversation with James Yorkson and Nina Person. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you both for taking the time to join us. Take the time to take the time. <laughs> No problem. Well, so uh, when we when we originally were going to speak, I believe you two had just finished up some some gigs, some record store gigs that you I think performed as a duo. Is that correct? Yeah, this was I think this was just after we'd just done Stockholm and we'd just done Malmo. So the mm. Stockholm was was full band, and then Malmo was just the duo. Um, they were good fun, you know. 
the the songs on this record, um, Great White Sea Eagle, are they're pretty expansive in terms of the record. There's a lot of people playing, you know, together with the secondhand orchestra. Was arranging the songs for a duo an interesting challenge? What was that? What was that like for the two of you? Well, every email we sent to every person involved said, "Please, can we have time to rehearse this?" <laughs> to rehearse? And then we had we had zero time to rehearse, <laughs> so we we just. Uh, we started at A and we got to Z at the end. And it uh, it was pretty good. I mean, I think Nina was really calm with it. When, when we got off stage, I was like, ah! But, but uh, Nina seemed pretty happy with it. And uh, I think we've got a rehearsal for Before Berlin. So we've got another duo show Before Berlin. And uh, I think we've actually definitely got a rehearsal built in. Yeah, it's always better the more. I mean, no, you you can rehearse too much too, but it's good if you feel solidly rehearsed. So there was an element of winging it um, at that show, but I think it it went well enough that we felt afterwards like, okay, great, next time it's going to be fantastic. You know that we just felt like we got something to work with, and also that you know that the it it, it was good enough. It was not too problematic. Can oh, feel you- a little bit crazy when when you're in the middle of it when you sort of don't know what you're doing but i think we did okay i I think it was better than good enough i mean it it was like skiing or something the first time you go down like "Ah!" but then you're like actually you know that was quite good fun you know we can we can try that again i i I think i was a little more uh, yeah uh the next one will be more will be better they've all been better i mean as we're going on they've all been better we're learning different things about the songs you know because we when we were recording them, we only played them like maybe four or five times before we recorded them. So yeah, um, they're still they're still quite new to us. <laughs> well, well, sure, James, you did an interview with Aquarium Drunkard uh, not too long ago. Alex Tobin did a great interview with you, where you talked about how your first collaboration with the Secondhand Orchestra, you you barely had ever played. I mean, you hadn't played together, and you kind of went in pretty free form and just sort of saw what happened was how does this one compare i mean obviously there's maybe a little more familiarity with you and the players but overall pretty similar situation in terms of kind of showing up with songs semi-written what was it what was it like how did this one come together i don't know this one sort of feels like it was uh, uh more luxurious um the previous one, we were in a different studio, and it was a lovely studio, but we're all in one tiny little space. And um, I didn't really think, and well, I didn't know the people at all. In fact, we'd done a gig the night before, and I was, I was really doing my best. I'd done a gig, like a solo gig, and then the secondhand orchestra had come on stage and backed me on five or six songs. And I was really doing my best to be polite and to get to know everyone. Oh, hello, you're such and such. Okay, cool, and you play this, you know. And then the next day we met, and it was just a completely different bunch of people. I mean, it was just ridiculous. So except for KJ and I think maybe one other, I didn't really know them in the slightest. But to this one, I'd already been to Malmo, and uh, Nino and I had hung out and tried to sort of get a grasp of the songs. And I knew the musicians a bit better now, so I remember their names even, you know. (laughs) So it felt a lot, a lot more comfortable, a lot more um, 
less less random. And also Domino had already agreed to the album, so everything seems just just felt more comfortable, I think. Nina, you've collaborated with a lot of different artists over the years, and we'll get to maybe discussing some of the specific collaborations a little later in the talk, but what was this sort of arrangement like? How did it how did it sit with you? Did you feel pretty excited about going in to a session that was less maybe uh, sketched out in terms of exactly what was going to be happening? What did that how did that sit with you? Well, it's quite new to me to 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 make a record recordings that way. So I was a little bit on my toes, you know, and I knew I'd have to be really alert to it was nothing I could learn too much beforehand. It was just a matter of being there. So but I was excited about this. It's something, you know, I try to expand um, you know, what I do a little bit more for each thing I I encounter and 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 it sure was. But it was it was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to to when you work your way towards an arrangement with a band like that, you know, uh, figuring it out as you go, yeah. a little bit. It was. I think, it was I, I, I think the key word Nina said there was, or the key phrase was, in the moment. I think that's what we all have to be. We all have to just um, listen to what the other people are doing and then uh, react to it. And of course, most of the other musicians will listen to what Nina and I were doing. So it, it's really you have to just think about that and forget about any of the outside pressures that may or may not be there. I mean, there's no real record company pressure. You know, we're not the Arctic Monkeys. We don't keep them. You know, we don't bring in huge amounts of money. You know, it's uh, everything was just about the music and trying to have fun. My main thing in the studio is just to try and get everyone to relax and to be themselves. And if you can that, if you can allow that to happen, then it, it it can be a very pleasurable experience. Yeah, that that's really cool to consider. I mean, I know both of you, uh, Nina, you've been doing some gigs sort of in a jazz context. And James, obviously, you've got your uh, sort of um, more jazz, classical, whatever, however you would sort of define what you do with the Yorkston Thorn Con group. Um, do those sorts of maybe contexts come into play in terms of a record like this where you really are leaning on the feeling, the sort of in-the-moment sort of style? Do you feel like you both have been maybe primed for that sort of engagement through those other projects that you've done? Well, I would. my guess is that James is more accustomed to it. It's more... Um, your style of working right james than it has been for me i've been i think being in the more sort of pop tradition or whatever it's we we tend to generally have things pretty sussed out before you go into the studio and or like really nitpicking it when you're you know track by track um sitting with it for a long time also as a vocalist you usually don't have as much um improvising Unless you're in, like, I think jazz and folk might have more of that, sort of. But at least I hadn't done it quite a lot. I used to be quite, sort of, have a frame uh, before I, I come in. But it's, it's my my impression is that you, James, work more in that way, whatever you do, pretty much, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I just think it's a learning thing that you that you go through in your life as a musician. I mean, I'm, 
I'm 50 something now, you know, I've done so many sessions and so many uh, gigs, you know, so many tiny folk gigs and where you just learn bits and bobs along the way. But I think the most important thing I've, I've learned is that is just not to be scared and, and not to, not to hold back. I mean, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to, you're going to go, ah! <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It has no real, no real importance. So, so for me, it, it's it's a it can be a very relaxing thing and it should be a very relaxing thing especially when you're doing songs like this if you're lucky enough to be able to do music for a living then why stress about it i mean it, it's it should be an open and rewarding thing i've kind of forgotten your original question because i was no it's my tea bag <laughs> my tea bag has burst open and the licorice leaves have come out which which annoyed me a little bit because that shouldn't happen, but uh, <laughs> but you know, but uh, it's okay, you know, and that's kind of what making an album is like. Oh, oh. sure, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the licorice leaves are broken out. It doesn't matter. We can get another one, you know, or whatever, you know. Yeah, or maybe they're su- maybe they're supposed to be out for some weird yeah, maybe reason. Supposed to. <laughs> I don't know. You know, John John Thorne, who plays in the in the. Yorks and Thong Khan trio, he, he always, he has all this, all this jazz language. So he'll say, there is no wrong, James. It's just a different note, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And with Sahail, we're playing in quarter tones and stuff. So, that, I mean, we're not even in Western scales. So, I mean, I don't know what's going on there at all. I'm just the guy with the guitar going, hey, trying to keep up. But it's going through life, you, as a musician, all this is, is great experience. And, and it comes to a head in the studio. Yeah. And hopefully provides something comfortable to work on. Nice. Well, you mentioned that the two of you got together very briefly before the session to kind of get, you know, a little bit of the conversation going and maybe some light idea of what the song's content would actually be. But I'm curious if in that meeting, if James, if you maybe were bringing something like a, uh, a mood or a frame were you were you interested in providing anything like a thematic reference point or or sort of saying to Nina like I think the mood of the song is like the mood of these songs is like this and maybe we could keep this in mind what kind of stuff are you doing in that sort of session because it doesn't sound like it was a we have to get this lyric exactly here we have to get this chord precisely in this spot so I wonder if it was a more sort of um if you were setting the tone in that sort of meeting or 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 what you were hoping to accomplish with that sort of thing well we chatted a couple of times on zoom and we tried singing together on zoom and that was a disaster because there was like a two second delay or whatever you know not two seconds but you know there's enough of a delay that it that we just sounded like a pair of wallies, you know. Going, ah, 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 you know, we couldn't quite. You can't. Hear what we you were can't doing suss. And, you can't suss the harmonies out via Zoom. No, no, <laughs> no absolutely not. So, the main the main thing for me was because I've not been playing guitar much. Was uh, I was aware that Nina was volunteering her time to meet this Wazak from Scotland, and that you know, our voices might just not work. And I'd come all the way over from. Uh, the UK had flown into Copenhagen, I think, and then got the train over to Malmo, and then I checked into a hotel. You know, there'd been quite a lot of work behind it already. And there's that there was that moment. You know when you get an album, Jason, from someone you haven't heard, and uh I don't know, the Bumblebee gang or something, you think, okay, the Bumblebee gang, let's put this on. And you listen to it, and the music, although it's important 
for me, certainly, the most important thing is, is that moment you hear the voice and that's, ah, oh, the Bumblebee gang, I can really believe in this, it's really going to work. For me, there was a countdown before Nina and I sang together because if it hadn't worked, I mean, I, I thought it was going to because I'd listened to a lot of her more recent stuff on YouTube when she was doing live performances and stuff, and we had chatted and stuff, so I thought it was going to work, but there was that moment. And then when we started singing together, I can't remember what song it was, I was like, oh, this sounds quite good. Yeah. <laughs> and that really that really made me relax. Um, but, but I suppose what I was bringing to the, to the meeting was um, uh, hope and um, confidence in the songs, because I, I did have confidence in the songs. Yeah. Nina, did you, what was it in the songs that you had heard that spoke to you and made you so interested in, in doing this project? Because as I mentioned, you've, you've done a lot of different work in terms of collaboration. What draws you to a project versus something that you might say, I'm going to pass on, on that one, which obviously you didn't do in this case. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, I was tempted to say just just now that there was a lot of information in the demos but then i kept thinking and it's really it is james and the piano on the demos so there's not but there is still a lot of information in the songs you see what i mean and that's what i heard before i spoke yeah. to james and before i listened to his other music is i heard the demos and they and it says a lot the songs in themselves uh, say a lot because they have their you know they have they have the, the elements i like to I usually, you know, appreciate in music if they're there that they had a closeness and a directness. They weren't they're literate, but they're not pretentious. You know, uh there's a quality in James's voice that I like. Um and 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 then it's like the, the kind of songs are like they actually do work. They work really well as just a demo. And they work with us as a duo. And they work really, they're really fun with a big band. So it's also, that's what I mean with there is a lot of information, even in that simple thing that he sent me. And that was all good. And it, it uh, you know, it made me trust it simply. You know, I think I heard three songs, four maybe, before we started to, to record. And then I ended up, I think three or four songs is what we discussed. And then I ended up being on, I don't know, then we had to just shift what we were discussing because suddenly I was, had smeared my voice all over the album. So then it was something else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, uh, I really liked it. I liked the demos. And then of course I also did after that, listen back to the previous record James did with the secondhand orchestra and also earlier stuff. And I just like, this is, this is fun. It's going to be great. You know, feeling also that it has potential to poten potential to be like, um, an another entity of, you know, another, uh, um, product of James Yorkston Limited. Yeah. <laughs> well, well it, it, I mean, it really is such a lovely record, and the two of you sound fantastic together, and there is a closeness and a, and a warmness to the recording that really comes across so beautifully and is so, and is so, so nice. James, you, well, Nina, it doesn't sound like you were that familiar with James's previous work. James, is it the the same case for you, or were you more aware of Nina's stuff? I was aware of who Nina was, of course. Back in the old days, uh, I come from a village called King's Barns, which is a tiny wee village in Fife. 
there was like 150 people or something when I was growing up. Actually, it was less than 150, but not not many less. And who's counting? Um, and when I moved to Edinburgh, I was obsessed with, um, like when I was young, I was obsessed with John Peel and people like that, you know, and he'd just play this music and you'd listen to it and just, you know, listen to these crazy guys from New York and things, you know. And uh, when I moved to Edinburgh, I got in with a group of people. And it was, of course, I, I, I fell in with the people who were obsessed with music. And back then, none of us really had any money. I, I was studying something, I think, at the time, or maybe I'd working in a bookshop or something. And uh, so if, if somebody found an album, like if one of the group found an album, they'd be like, oh, you have to listen to this. And because we didn't have the access to the internet and stuff, when you got an album, you'd give it more chance and you'd live with it for a good time because you didn't want to think you'd wasted your money on something, you know. So one of my friends, I can't remember who, presented me with the Cardigans album called Life. And we just loved it. We all loved it. Everyone in my recycle of friends were like, oh, you have to listen to this. It's like nothing else that anyone else is doing at the time. It's kind of really poppy and kind of retro feeling, but it kind of feels like it's spot on. You know, every, the songs are great. That's the main thing. The songs are great, but the voice is great. So it was one of those albums that we kept within our group of friends and we'd, we'd uh, put on cassettes for each other and all that sort of thing, you know. And of course, my interest is mainly traditional music. So I didn't really... You know, I didn't really follow uh, where Nina went after them, but of course I heard all the great hit singles and, and they are great hit singles. So I knew what was going on. And then when her name was suggested, I, um, I thought, yeah, that's absolutely. But before I said that, I did have a listen to what she'd been up to more recently to make sure that she still had that quality to her voice. And if anything, uh, I think her voice had got better because it had grown and matured. And that is, as a, somebody who's very interested in traditional music and traditional singers, that really, really appealed to me. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I can say that as a fan, uh, I, I I know, <laughs> I, it's funny, you, you made this record, so you've got this very up-close view of it. You know, as somebody who, who uh, is just a listener, I also was so excited to hear Nina's voice, a voice that I have loved for uh, well over 20 years at this point. Um, Love Fool was such a huge hit here in the U.S. too, and it was inescapable. And one of those songs that I never got tired of hearing, genuinely, continue, and that continues to this day. Um, but it was so exciting to hear Nina's voice in this different context. And then getting ready for this interview to spend all this time, Nina, listening to your stuff with A-Camp, your solo stuff, all the different stuff you've done, that quality of your voice does carry through. But it really is exciting to hear it in such a... Such an interesting... The, the, this record has a feel... I mean, I want to say, you know, it's so intimate or it's so folky or it's quiet, you know, because there are those those moments, but it's really exciting to hear your voice in this context. And I wonder if, for you, uh, did you find yourself... Uh, what, what were your impressions when you were listening to the playback of this? Were you excited to hear yourself presented in a way that is unique to your discography for sure oh yeah for, for me it's one thing that is very different as i mentioned a little bit before is that this record i usually 
I'm quite nitpicky with my vocals. I usually spend some time, you know, editing and I I even have for periods really enjoyed that sitting and producing my own vocals and yeah. but it's so and this is not these are live takes. So but it was really but I I, um, I was excited about that because I was thinking like at this point this should work without <laughs> editing and I'm just going to let it be, you know. I don't think there was any takes when I was like, I refused it because I sucked. But there might be little bits that I would have wanted to go over. But they, but I, I, I decided to leave it to, if everybody else is happy, I'm just hoping they'll be honest. And if everybody who has to represent this record is happy with it, then I'm going to be too, you know. Yeah. Because, uh, because I've played so much live at this point also, and I've never had... I mean, it it works, so I shouldn't sit there and treat my vocals so much afterwards. And also, I think this day and age, when so many people are using, are producing vocals pretty heavily, I think it's been like you react when you hear a vocal or any music that's not too sort of processed and filtered and fixed. So I think it's you, yeah, you 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 sort of, you know, you you pay attention when you hear that. And I want I wanted to to this to be that sort of as a, a litmus test a little bit because like, i figured oh, f- surely this must work at this point you know uh, and it and i think it really did and now now I, when i listen to the recordings i don't think of any mistakes anymore nothing that but you know i can i had i have sort of uh, uh cbt'd myself out of that uh, mind state in the studio where i sit and listen for mistakes you know it was cognitive behavior therapy for me to just be like it's not that bad yeah. You know? And on the other hand, that thing was really sweet in this take. For, and and on that and on this take also, Peter did this, which we don't want to miss, you know. So it's all about that. So it's uh, uh so it was for me it was really fun. And I and I have to say, I mean I, I secretly feel really proud that it worked so well. Uh and I'm glad to have uh, overcome that with myself too. Yeah, I think that obviously there there's there's no wrong way to do it. You you could produce the vocals in that sort of line by line, get it exactly right. There's certainly music where that's what it calls for, but it must be freeing to be in this context where it's not about it's not about micromanaging. It's about just letting the sort of overall picture come through. Yeah, that's beautiful to hear. I think some of that is 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 like studio bullying anyway, you know. And there's a guy saying, "Okay, do the vocal again." You're like, "This vocal sounds fine, you know. It's not the Olympics, you know. It's, we're just we're making a record. We're trying to make something beautiful. You don't have to really, really go over things over and over." I think that's I totally, totally appreciate it in some music that it's the way it works. But in this kind of music, I think that's I think that's a nonsense. Oh, I mean, yeah. uh, Nina's Nina's vocal is is absolutely gorgeous the whole way through. You know, she's got such a thick and lovely sound going on that it would be horrible if you took took away tiny wee parts or if you ran it through a a tuner or something. It would just it'd just be awful. It'd be it'd be a crime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that that you that you too let that this one that this one presented itself as such a a naturalistic thing because it it it's really exciting to listen to.
Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I was thinking about sort of certain themes that I, I seemed to pick up on uh, throughout the record. There are plenty of references to parenting and children on on this record, which I think contributes to that feeling of it being so... Uh, so personal and warm and kind of close. Um, you're, you're both you're both parents, right? I mean, how many how many kids do the two of you have, respectively? <laughs> Three in total. One for me and two for James. <laughs> yeah, James is holding up two for listeners who who might not get oh, to see sorry, his screen. Sorry. I, I forgot this was a radio thing. Sorry. Yes, two, two. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful with your visual cues. The listener will yeah, not yeah. receive them, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> well, do you? Um, you, you know, as as parents, I mean, it's a weird thing. I I, I felt like James lyrically, it seemed like you were. There's moments where it's almost like you're I don't want to I don't want to stumble too uh greatly with this question but I'll I'll do my best to sort of form it into a question but I feel like there are moments where you're almost addressing yourself the way a parent might address a child. I don't know if that makes any sense or if that is something that you felt like was written into the songs but I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about that idea of of the sort of parental voice that exists on this record. Not like a lecturing, here's how it is voice, but more of a comforting sort of voice. Does that, does that resonate at all with you? Well, the first thing to say is, is that I don't think about anything as I'm writing it down, and, and it, mm-hmm. it certainly isn't written as, as, it isn't written for something. Like, it's, uh, what I mean by that, it's not written towards... It's it, it's not as though that's what I was trying to do with the album, sure. but then you know I'm I'm uh, fifty. If I'm well, I'm going to say if I'm lucky, I'm middle aged. But let's be honest, I don't really <laughs> want to live to a hundred at all. Um, uh, there's incredible but, you know, incredible advances in in healthcare, so maybe maybe you want to live to a hundred. I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. You mistake me for someone else. Um, no, but I mean, I have young children and I have elderly parents and. Mm. Uh, of course, they are on my mind a huge amount. And uh, I'm lucky enough as a songwriter that I don't have a, a huge legion of fans waiting to hear my next song about, about I don't know, about, I don't know, about some pop song or something. And I, and I love pop music, but I, this sounds really, really pretentious, but I'm lucky enough to be able to do music for a living. And all I can do, all I want to do is write about what I want to write about. So this time it's mostly come out about my parents and about my children, but there's other things. There's a lot of other things on the on the record, but there's no 
it's just what's in my mind. It's just what I'm writing about. So I know I'm not really answering the question. <laughs> so basically what I'm doing now is trying to answer your question is, does the album feel as though I'm addressing myself as an older person and as a younger person? I suppose it possibly could. I suppose it possibly could do that. Certainly when I'm talking to my the kids there, trying to give them advice, and I'm looking at my aging parents, my aging father, I mean, of course, I'm thinking about me as I talk about my aging father. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. So there was that line, here I am between my son and my father. And who put me in charge? <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, we all know where we are on the, on the escalator or whatever, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's tricky, man. I've just been with my parents now, and it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, we all get old. Yeah. I don't want to be 100. Yeah. Let me end with that. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Nina, do you want to live to be 100, do you think? I was talking to my friend about that today. I think we both agreed that we probably won't, actually, and that we probably, we, we, we agreed that we, we probably live too hard to get to be one of the 100 <laughs> years old. Uh, so, no, I, I mean, I, probably not. I mean, I, I just want to be, I just want to have a, if I could be a, Having a good life till then, I would, but I think you can't. I'd rather have a good life till the end, and I think that will happen earlier than 100. That's my answer. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a very good answer. A good life to the end. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, uh, if, if, yeah. I, that's, that's a great, that's a, that's a, that's a very beautiful way to think about it. I am thinking, of course, we've now entered into the topic of mortality, which brings to mind the song Heavy Lyric Police, which I was very interested in where, where that one came from. I think that with this record, um, it's, it's a very, it's a very beautiful record and it's a very comforting and, and like, as I've mentioned now, ad nauseum intimate sounding record i think that maybe the humor could get lost uh to a casual listener who's just sort of luxuriating in the sweetness of the sound you know but i feel like there is a definite sort of sideways humor at work in this record as well i'm thinking about that lyric in the song mary where you're you're I think the lyric is something about saving somebody from a life in music, which I found very, very humorous. Um, is there, uh, was that another way in which the two of you sort of bonded over maybe a slightly, uh, slightly sardonic sense of humor? I thought that line, that line to me was something that I was like, yes, I, I know that line. I want, you know, I felt like it's, especially since we're both doing this work, obviously, and we're, we have kids uh, who who may or may not become musicians, but it's. Uh, I think that was a great to have like a, this record also be a campaign for children not to choose music. As <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to warn them off of of that life, that path, yeah. that path. That's funny. <laughs> Keep away, suckers. <laughs> also, another thing that I thought about recently is the song "Hold Out for Love." Sort of has the quality of being sort of advising people not no sex before marriage, <laughs> right? No did... sex before, no during, before, during, or after marriage, especially before in this sense. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it That's that good. way, but now that you put it that way, sure, that sounds like it could be a uh, an well, at act. least, or well, at least not casual sex, like. Hold, hold out, out for love. love. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. <laughs> Could be. So some uh, 
some heavy right-wing Christian people can uh, pay us some money and have the song, yeah? No? Right? We've, pay you some money. We've, we've, we've got some of those here in the United States, some some right-wing Christians who would... Who would and they're rich this. too, usually, right? And they're, Yeah, and they're rich. So, I mean, I think that you've stumbled onto an incredible opportunity here for uh, for licensing, yeah. I think there are agencies for that in the America, in America. Uh-huh. You'll find them. Uh, James, is that is that <laughs> was that humor? Is that the kind of humor that we're we're talking about that you that you guys were were both sort of indulging in here? Well, I'm glad I'm glad that Nina um, was certainly into the humor. That that that's the thing. But it comes down to the same old thing that uh, I don't I don't write sit down and write and try to be funny. I just write and write and write, and uh, then I edit and edit and edit. And the lines that I think can get through, they're the ones that remain. Um, so the humor does tend to be hidden because because um, I find obvious humor in songs quite wearing. Um, I know there's some very funny bands and all that sort of stuff, and I've, I've got nothing against humor in music. But in fact, just yesterday was the 100th birthday of Ivor Cutler, who's um, a great Scotch philosopher, musician, um, poet. And he is most famous for his funny songs, you know, and I'm a massive fan of his work. But for me, it's just what creeps out. It, I mean, I never think about events like this. I, on a Zoom call with you and Nina, whilst I'm writing and think, oh, what, what am I going to say if they ask about humor? That line's a wee bit funny. It's just a question of seeing what comes out and then editing it. I think the worst thing one can do is question what one is writing at the time. Um, so I, the humor's there and I appreciate it, but, um, I don't really notice it as it goes in. I don't think, oh, I should put a joke in the third verse or I should make a funny pun here. And a lot of the time people don't get it at all anyway. Sure. A lot of the time they, 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 they kind of, uh, but then sometimes they do and they come up to me and say, is that really what you mean? And I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> did you pick up on that? I mean, there, there's a song on a record, um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say what it is, but there's there's one of my songs, and somebody came up to me and said, "Is that song filthy?" I said, "Yeah, it's quite filthy." And they said, "Yeah, I thought it was filthy." <laughs> Let, <laughs> so you know. <laughs> yeah, let's let's leave that as a uh, as a as a Easter egg for the listener. If you if you know what song James is talking about, then write in, and we'll you know. <laughs> there's 21 funny things on this record. Write in and see if you can spot the 21. Yeah, funny exactly, exactly. Hidden, hidden in the in the music. Yeah. James, there's there's also the the title track is is spoken. It's a spoken piece that that goes with the music. Uh, I read that that began as a piece of prose. Obviously, you write books and you write. Um, in addition to your songs, you're also an author. I wonder if the process of writing prose is similarly rooted in the subconscious, or does that require you to be a little bit more um, specific in your intention or the way you go about it? Are, do the do, do songs and, and prose, do they have you know, a root in the same sort of place for you, or are they entirely different practices? Do they bleed over, you know, and cross into each other at times? It's, it didn't really start off as prose. It just started as, as writing, you know, I, I mean, I would never think, Oh, and this is going to be a bit of prose or this is going to be a song or I suppose that 
thinking about it just now, I suppose the obvious thing is that in the prose, there is a lot more space for stretching out and uh, and having fun with the language and stuff. But also it tends to be, most of my prose tends to be fiction um, because I'm sat, sat down and trying to write a novel or whatever. Um, but from a creative point of view, it's great having them both available at the same time. Um, for example, if I'm coming to the end of a novel, but I'm not feeling like it, it's sometimes great just to be sat at the piano or the guitar and just having a little play or whatever and seeing what comes out. Having the two things beside each other, I, I find very um, helpful, very rewarding. Um, but no, I never really consider what's going to happen. It, 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 it's just, you know, this, is, this album's been a bit weird. The previous album had, had loads and loads of reviews and interviews and stuff. And this one has as well. And I think maybe I'm getting a bit too successful. And I uh, think the next record will be back to obscurity because it, it does feel a bit weird just discussing the artistic process and discussing what the songs are about. And it's almost as like, I, I'm okay because I'm, I'm very easy at keeping things separate and compartmentalizing. But it does, it does feel a bit strange discussing these things that I make by myself. Yeah. in the studio but i write by myself in the studio i, I totally appreciate that uh, uh nina especially and the secondhand orchestra um helps create this beast i i was thinking about how how differently i might approach this interview were we just talking about your electronic leaning stuff you know the sort of l less less lyric focused and and i'm sure that well for both of you that it it can it 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 must get weird occasionally, sort of having to unpack the things that go into the songs, especially when you're not meditating on here's what I'm going to attempt to do with this record and and if that were the way you approached it, you know maybe those sort of um, people picking up on certain themes would be like oh great I got it across, but it doesn't sound like there's any sort of attempt at that which makes it must must make discussing it a little strange yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head there it's it if i'm very happy I, i'm happy to talk to you now don't get me wrong of course and, I and i'm over, <laughs> overjoyed that you're showing an interest it's always lovely uh to, to to talk about music and stuff but for me you can imagine how easy it is to talk about things like the bass guitar, you know, <laughs> or, or where I met Nina, or, or that sort of thing. But then when you're talking about uh, but the, the specifics of this song, how did you get to the inside of this song, it, it's a tricky thing because really you don't want to muck things up. You don't want to get inside and, and change. I don't want to question how I write songs myself. I feel I'm in a very easy place where things are just flowing out. So it, it, it's just a strange it's a peculiar thing, um, especially on the on the radio and things. You want to say, I want to give you as much as I can, but at the same time, a lot of the songs are, are very, very personal. And it, it's kind of tricky talking about that without, um, without I don't know, feeling as though I'm, I'm getting too close to the other compartment. Do you see what I mean? 
Yeah, or even maybe spoiling the mystery for the listener, because that's the beautiful thing. Thank you. Thing. That's, that's an easier way of saying it. Hey, no, man, I don't want to spoil the mystery <laughs> for the singer. <laughs> no, man, it's whatever you think it means. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's so funny about that, though, is that there is... Well, looking through the the there there are like a lot of specific names on this record. Um, we've got Sam and Jeannie McGregor, um, which to me feels like a mouthful, but sounds so natural when you when you sing that lyric. Uh, Nina, it, it it comes across so beautifully. But you've got that. You've got Peter Paulo Van Der Hayden, who was a a football player. Is that is that right? No. <laughs> When I Googled him, that's what came up. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a song about a football player uh, who I'd never seen play. I thought that'd be uh, quite funny for him to wake up one day. <laughs> uh, no, he was a Flemish painter, was he not? Well, I mean, it must you 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 must know better than me. I, I, yeah, I, I no, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll I'll tell you. Peter Paul van der Hayden was. It's a, it's a song. I'm quite happy to discuss this one because it doesn't really go into heavy, heavy stuff. Basically, it's it's a song about how, you know, as you grow up, grow in life, some of your friends grow a different way. And you have must you, sometimes you have amazing adventures with them in your teens or your 20s or later. But then perhaps you grow apart. And uh, the song Peter Paolo is about, uh, well, a number of people who I've perhaps grown apart from, but though sometimes you feel as though you have to go back and uh, and see them, you know, just to touch base, but when you do it, it all goes horribly wrong. So that's what the song is about. And the name, Peter Paolo van der Hayden, I, that was just a combination of three friends' names, including Peter from the band, Peter Moran. And uh, van der Hayden is the name of a friend of mine from my teenage years. Um, in fact, who I'm still in touch with, I wrote to them recently and said, hey, I put your name in a song. And they're like, hey, that's great. And uh, and Paolo is a friend of mine down in London who I speak to Nino about recently. And uh, so that was more a kind of fun building song. So it was like a lightweighted thing to do. And it was only afterwards when I Googled Peter Paolo van der Hayden that I discovered there was indeed a footballer and also a Flemish, I think he's Flemish, um engraver i believe they were an engraver and um, with the same name but no i promise you that wasn't uh who it was about <laughs> well i i love that song there's a reference to london calling in the in the yes. in the song i wondered if was london calling a big album for the both of you when uh when you were younger or or is that a record that you have particular attachments to uh, either and or both of you? I'll just answer in the, in the context of the song. Um, I, I was with a friend, a, 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 quite a dear friend, and we were sat in Dundee and they were just about to get the train, the, the bus to the airport. And, um, and uh, London Calling came on the TV, the song. And, um, and she began to weep. Mm. And that was it. It it really was just um, that tiny bit of a... Uh... You all right, Nina? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just uh, taking you on a little tour here. I'm just getting something. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was a song about um, 
yeah, it was just about saying goodbye to someone. And we'd, we'd had a really lovely time, but it was time for them to go. And London had meant a lot for us at the time. I think I was 16 or something like that. So we were reaching really quite far back. And do you remember when London Calling came on the TV and we came to weep? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember. Yeah. But, you know, life changes. That's 35 years ago. 30, yeah, a long time back. Wow. Uh, Nina, was The Clash an important band to you? Did you have any resonance with that lyric? <clears throat> I know I, I know it, of course. I I didn't ever listen to Clash much myself. I never listened to, like, that sort of rock and punk. Um we we played we had a um we did some festival in some sort of exotic place with the clash and Joe Strummer and our keyboard player in the band became really close they were inseparable it was really sweet the two of them sat next to each other in some transport we were on being taken um that was cute no but the, uh, so i don't really have that sort of a relation to it my son is really into the clash he's revisiting rock history sort of uh classic rock stuff so he's he's uh, he's a big fan but i've never had that's one sort of part of the like uh rock that never really appealed i like it a lot now but it's not that it wasn't that big for me sure did you ever did you ever get into punk and things nina or is that just was that never anything for you no i've enjoyed some sort of music verging on punk uh, and i enjoy it nils also likes to listen to the ramones and stuff yeah. like that N not really that and metal was were things that I never really. I mean, in 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 the pretty much overall, the, the genre of rock was never really my. But of course, I've listened to a lot of music that would be classified as that. As that, but um, yeah. Well, I think that uh, that there's there's some irony in that, given that you, of course, have recorded one of the greatest Black Sabbath covers of all time. So. Whether that's or... pop music. Black Sabbath is pop music. Those oh. melodies, that's pop, right? I mean, no. <laughs> no, I completely agree. There is an absolute, I mean, well, first off, heavy metal didn't exist when they were playing it. You know, they were inventing it in the, in the moment. But uh, Ozzy and Black Sabbath, yeah, the pop melodies are, are ingrained into that stuff. He was a big mm -hmm. Beatles fan. You can hear it, you know? So... Mm -hmm. Who was the guitar player from that band? Was it Tony? Tony Iommi. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I met him in the <laughs> in the Bradford uh, Steelworks Museum, which won't mean much to most of your uh, <laughs> most of your listeners. Um, it's just a tiny it's a tiny industrial museum in Bradford in in Yorkshire and uh, England. And he was there. I don't know who he was with his partner, perhaps. And I was thinking, who's that? I recognise that guy. Who's that? You know, really old guy with dyed black hair. And uh, <laughs> I was I was so so um, tempted to go and ask for a, a, a selfie, and then announce it on Twitter that uh, announcing my new <laughs> partner for the next record, Tony yeah. Iommi. But uh, all I could say all I could say was, "Oh hi man, yeah yeah, this is great, isn't it? This is oh, I love this." You know, all I could say was vague, vague stuff. I mean. What would I have said? Oh, I'm a I'm a musician too. My yeah. name is James. You know, I don't think that really would have worked. You know, <laughs> he would have get away from me. Get yeah. away, you old man. So, uh, but yeah, brush with rock and roll fame. Well, I, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for the Iomi, uh 
you know, addition to to the James Yorkson disco- discography because I I think it could be cool. Again, listeners, James Yorkson, Nina Parshan, Tony Iommi, yeah, and the, <laughs> and the Second Hand Orchestra, yeah, yeah, there you go, and the Second Hand Orchestra. But everybody's got Marshalls now, and it's gonna be yeah. a different. It's gonna be a different vibe. Um, and I'm gonna wear a wig. Okay, you'll see me. <laughs> Can I wear the Judas Priest gear? Is that okay? <laughs> I think we're on to something here. Um, we'll have to we'll have to make sure that we'll do some follow-up emails to arrange all of this but um well i wanted to ask before before we wrap up about um the two of you i two very different musical heroes of mine you've had interactions with and so i wanted to ask each of you about those two we'll start with you nina you uh worked with the incredible vocalist james brown or James Brown, Jesus, what's wrong with me? Yeah, I was like, did I? That's <laughs> how did that even? That's a complete, I guess, Freudian slip. Tom Jones is what I meant to say. Right. Yeah. Tom Jones, another notable soul singer of the uh, of uh, the huge voice variety. Um, I have no idea why I said James Brown, but you worked with with Tom Jones on a cover of Bringing Down the House, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I'm just so curious. I think he's one of the most fascinating and interesting. We interviewed him at Aquarium Drunkard um, when his he had put out a book a few years ago, uh, along with the latest in a, a long string of albums where he was sort of doing stripped down, very uh, direct blues and R&B leaning material. He's continued with that. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was working with? him like and and what's he like in person oh yeah he's it it was really fun it was uh, that uh that collaboration is one of this kind there's other kind of collaborations that happen sometimes when it was not it was sort of like more of an official um starting point where he was making a record at the time with uh there were collaborations with all sorts of different bands of the current time. I remember the band Catatonia was on there and, you know, it would be like some sort of indie-leaning bands and some popular bands at the time, and we were one of them that they contacted. So it was, you know, it was one of these things where we got the request and we were like, Tom Jones, what, who? Uh, And was like, I guess. And then we had the idea to do Burning Down the House, which felt like it could be fun. um, And was that you with the band, Nina, or was it just you? No, it is the cardigan. So it's our producer did the track, and Tom Jones came here to Malmo to our studio to oh, cool. do the vocals, which was um, which was really fun. It was the fun parts of that. I mean, he's a lovely, he's a really lovely person, and um, uh, I guess what he's been he's lasted for a long time. So that must be one part of it, I assume. So it was really fun to hang out with, and he seems to seem to also enjoy hanging out with us. You know, he loved. He loved to tell tales and tell stories, and we loved to listen to them. and And we we hung out, we had dinners and stuff. And he loves to drink and smoke cigars. And um, it was a lot of like we would ask something, and he would not stop telling. So it was, a, <laughs> and, and he loved that. So it was a win win situation. We all really enjoyed it. And we did some traveling with him too. We went to some countries and did some TV things. And he was super polite, and he he was nice enough that it you know it seemed to have he would. Later on, he would sort of let us know when he was in Vegas and say that we were invited. Once we went to see him in Vegas, 
he would like uh, he would stay in touch, which is sweet. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? Oh, that's so yeah. cool. That's so yeah. cool. I found him to be just like a force of nature when we were speaking. Yeah. He just was like so doing interviews you get used to people who uh just you two don't count as this at all but you know people who will just sort of these are the these are the stories that we're going to trot out in regards to this record and we're going to just kind of you know restate them each different interview with mm -hmm. him i got the sense that he just didn't had he was approaching it as if he had never done an interview. He was just talking to me about all these. He, yeah, so giving and so kind of like gregarious. It was a very, yeah. very cool thing. Um, he really genuinely seemed to enjoy his his work still and his traveling and meeting children like us. And, well, and yeah, yeah, and he seems. I think you can hear it in these modern records of his where he's very excited about taking on material that people don't immediately associate with him you know yeah. uh different differing stuff james the hero that i wanted to bring up in regards to your career is that early on you toured with john martin who i think of as one of the all-time greats how did that if i if i've read right you didn't have a lot of time to think about that you were offered a tour and had to make your mind up pretty quickly is that correct yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I, I'd left the band I was in, and um, I was I was I'd given myself like a year to um, try and do solo music, you know, to make some kind of something. And uh, <coughs> he was playing. He was playing in one of the local um, one of the local uh, halls. So I sent my cassette to him and said, "Can I?" I mean, to the lady and said, "Can I open for John Martin?" <laughs> you know. Ridiculous, really. And um, th she wrote back saying, no, <laughs> he doesn't have open opening slots. So I was like, oh, well, that's a shame. And then um, somebody who I knew in London managed to get a copy of the cassette to his management. And they, they, they said, yeah, you can do the Edinburgh show. And I said, oh, wow. And this was a huge deal for me, um, opening for any sort of big act, uh, in Edinburgh was just like this is amazing, and I was terrified. And then the 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 phone calls kept coming in, and they said, "Do you want to do the Glasgow one too?" And I said, "What playing Glasgow? Are you sure? Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Yeah." And then it's like, "Do you want to do Aberdeen and all these things?" So I ended up with six shows supporting John Martin in Scotland. I was like, "Oh my God, I've got six shows with John Martin. What's going on?" And then the phone call just kept on going and said, oh, do you want to do the rest of the UK shows? I said, whoa, what are you talking about? And we ended up uh, doing the UK and Ireland. So we did 28 shows. Wow. And I was absolutely, I was so inexperienced. I'd only done two solo gigs before. One of them was at an open mic gig. And one of them was opening for a guy called Bert Janch who was uh, a, a, another great uh, Scottish uh, folk blues guitar player. Um, and Bert was amazing. He was very, very uh, um, kind and uh, encouraging. John's store was a completely different kettle of fish <laughs> because by the time I, I met him, which was the first gig was in the, actually, I think it was in the Jazz Cafe, and, uh, Nina, where we're playing mm -hmm. soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
by that stage, bless him, bless John, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, by that stage, he was, he was pretty indebted to alcohol. Mm. And I would say he was perhaps not being managed by the, by the type of management who perhaps would have been best for his health. And his band were veterans of the road, and they weren't particularly interested in this terrified wee boy from Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was a very, very tricky situation for me. Um, and the very first gig was absolutely terrible. But then somewhere from within, I got this thing that just said, I'm not going to let this go. I'm not going to let this die. I'm not just going to let every gig be as bad as that. And I really, really put my heart into trying to make it as good as possible. And by good, I don't mean X Factor good. I mean singing in tune, playing in time, tuning the guitar, not being scared on stage, yeah. trying to interact with the audience, all this sort of stuff, you know, just trying to take up a little bit. And by the end, 28 or 29 shows, I can't remember what it was, I was, I was obviously a lot more experienced. And it really helped me uh, a huge amount as a as a singer, and I hate to use this word, but as a performer, you know, <laughs> you know, it really it really gave me experience and helped me out. And um, John was uh, what can I say? He had a reputation of being a terrible person. And I don't mean that lightly. I mean it, the reputation of um, beating his wife and uh, treating the band very badly, not paying them, and uh, just being lost to alcohol. But I never, the alcohol aside, I only really ever saw, uh, oh no, except for the one time where, <laughs> except for one time. I only really experienced him as a as a nice guy. He had limited interest in me, the support guy. He had more interest in his bottle of Bacardi. Um, <laughs> but the the conversations I had with him uh, were, were mostly mostly good. But I was it's a tricky thing, man. I know how people are uh, in love with the guy. I know how they love his music, and I can absolutely see that he was a pioneer and he brought this incredible sound into the kind of electronic folk sort of sound with his uh, reverb and his delay pedals and stuff. Um, but I, I hate to say this, but the main thing it taught me was not to become an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm glad that you, that you kind of said all that because when I say he's a hero of mine, there are necessary qualifiers probably and sort of disclaimers that need to be trotted out because, to your point, deeply troubled, deeply complicated figure, but musically mind-blowing. And it sounds like that tour was a real forged-in-fire moment for you where you had to just figure out what you were doing and that's yeah no forged in fire is absolutely right and you know there were there were there, there were some songs that he did which were extraordinary night after night there was one way bellowed out my name is john wayne i don't know the name of the song um but i mean that was really hair on the back of your neck spine tingling stuff going on but then you know Getting paid at the end of the tour wasn't much fun, and um, and I got paid, but it wasn't easy. And 
and his management, I thought, was a. Uh, uh, am I allowed to swear on your on your podcast on yes. your radio show? Yes, most well, certainly. He, yeah, it's not very strong swearing, but he was a complete fucking prick. Yeah, his manager. Yeah, and it it so everything about it. It was a sink or swim situation, and unfortunately, I learned to swim pretty quickly. But uh, I don't look back on it with uh, with much affection. I have to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and I much compare him to Bert Janter. I played a couple of shows with. I, I would much rather have done that tour with Bert. Bert was a lovely, sweet guy who yeah. had loads of time for me. Uh, I remember once I was playing with him in Paris, and uh, I'd been booked into the wrong hotel again. This is pre-internet, and we were just like, "What? So I'm in a different hotel from Bert? What, what's going on?" <laughs> so he came with me and walked around the streets until we found the hotel that I was being booked into. There's zero chance John would have done that. Sure, sure. <laughs> wow. But before we before we wrap up, Nina, did you ever have? Were you ever the opening act on a tour similar that was as fraught as uh, the case with John Martin here? Or does anything come to mind? No, not not bad in a way like that. We one of our first big tours was opening up for Blur on the Park Life tour. So th those were big shows. And it was that's uh, famously the period we've understood afterwards when they were in a bad place as a band, right? Sure. Great, uh, you know, great musical match, and we, you know, we love seeing them every night. And they were not kind enough, but they were they were just not in a good place. They, they you know, they were fighting a lot between each other. They thought we we were annoying because we <laughs> came on that tour. I mean, we we're a five piece band, and we all brought brought our partners and fucking friends. <laughs> <laughs> so we were a big posse that was sort of there running all around like little mice sort of being and, and I mean we were for sure but our friends also being really starstruck by Blur so I can tell it was our first uh, support tour so after that I've learned like we did all the mistakes as a support act too so I'm not blaming Blur for being annoyed with us <laughs> but uh, but they were they were kind enough but they were also it, it, they were they had their own shit to deal with yeah um but yeah, sure. probably the same. This is probably the same with John. You know, he definitely had his own shit to deal with, and yeah. I'm sure the band did as well. Sure. The only thing I can say is, in my defense, I wasn't one of the little mice. I was just staying the fuck out of this world. Yeah, yeah. And you didn't bring like uh, five extra people. You didn't didn't bring a <laughs> no. classic posse then. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> well, so as you uh, get ready to to play some more shows. Um, I'm sure that it must be fun to play. It must be fun to perform this stuff and have all these years of touring under your belt, right? So you really understand the sort of way to go about live performance without some of the hassles and, and, and headaches that you you learned those lessons the hard way, it sounds like, both of you. Yeah, and so has everybody in the band. We're all, I mean, everybody who, who will ever play with us are people who've done it a lot in a lot of different contexts and so many different environments. So it's nice. It's it seems we're all sort of quite capable touring people, which makes it easier for for James. I, we don't we don't have a tour manager, and and it works because we're all adults. That's a good aspect of it. I love that. I love that. And I I want to thank both of you so much for taking the time to hang out and to talk about this record. It's been a real blast speaking with both of you. Thank you so much for for your time. So great it worked. Yeah, thanks for trying again. Oh, I'm so happy to have made it happen. It was uh 
it's uh, I w- this was going to be the first episode we taped for the season, but now we're a few in, and frankly, I'm glad because it it's a it's something where you get back in the the sort of uh, the groove with it, and it starts to feel a little bit more natural. And so I'm very glad that we were able to catch up and that it was as much fun as it was. So thank you both, and congrats on this great record. And we'll speak again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you so much. How about that? Nina Pearson and James Yorkston here on Transmissions. Thanks so much for tuning in and being part of the show. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, produce, and host it. Transmissions is edited and sounds great because of Andrew Horton. Our music this season comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. Find more by visiting mastin.bandcamp.com. Our executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his radio show, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time every Wednesday. We're a part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more great podcasts, interviews, and other fascinating reads. If you appreciate Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions, be sure to rate and review it and subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to make your support official, check us out on Patreon. And of course, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email in the contact section at Aquarium Drunkard. Drop me a line. Let me know what you like about the show, thoughts about specific interviews, or whatever else you want to share. You can find me on most social media at Jason P. Woodbury and over on Substack. Next week on the show, Max Turnbull of Badge Epoch Ensemble joins me for a far-out conversation about music, creativity, and consciousness. I hope you will return and join us. If you want to check out the podcast archives, there's plenty to hear from recent guests like James McNew of Yola Tango and Chad Clark of Beauty Pill. Thanks so much for listening. This transmission is concluded. <laughs>